Let us then now return to Luke chapter 17. Having looked at the ten lepers last Lord's Day evening, we want to look at this section now from verses 20 to 27. Uh, This section concerns a, a question that the Pharisees asked the Lord Jesus. We have it here in verse 20. In fact, we might say it was more demanded of the Lord Jesus. For verse 20 tells us, And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, and so on. And this section is taken up uh, in a response to an answer that was demanded of the Lord Jesus from the Pharisees. And as we've gone through Luke, we do notice the various comments and the, the questions of the Pharisees and how Jesus was able to capitalize on these things and pass on very useful instruction and information to his disciples. The Pharisees had an agenda, but the Lord Jesus Christ was able to adapt their agenda in order to suit his own purposes and to further his own cause and to instruct his people. And we are extremely grateful in one sense to the Pharisees for demanding an answer to this question, when the kingdom of God should come. But the answer they got was not what they wanted, and it was not what they expected. The title I'd like to give to our sermon tonight is, When Will It Come? When Will It Come? And the it is obviously the kingdom of God. The Pharisees, along with all the Jews, had a notion regarding the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God to them was their Messiah would come. And he would destroy the Romans who were ruling their land at this time. And they and the the Messiah, when he would come, would restore Israel's fortunes so that Israel would again be a great nation, a world power, the Gentiles would be punished, and the Jews would rule under the kingdom of God. It was entirely temporal. It was entirely earthly. This is what dominated the theology of the day. It was their Messiah would come. He would set up a glorious military and political kingdom. The Jews would dominate the world. The Gentiles would be punished for their sin. And as far as the Jews were concerned, everything would be to their liking. This is what is behind the question that was posed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there are four things that I wish to draw from this passage from you, for I trust our edification. Jesus says, first of all, my first heading is the kingdom of God and secrecy. And we use the word secrecy with inverted commas. 
because what basically Jesus is saying to them, the kingdom of God is here now, but not yet. In some sense, the kingdom of God is here. What does it say? The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. And we're inclined to believe what he's talking about here is, my kingdom's not like other earthly kingdoms. Other earthly kingdoms, what happens? They come with great military might and power. A king goes out, he conquers a nation, and he may conquer that nation, then he may go on and conquer another nation, or a number of nations, and he'll become a great ruler. That's not the kingdom of God. That's not the kingdom where Christ is the king. Nothing like that at all. It doesn't come with outward pomp and observation. He goes on, Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. What did he mean by this? Well, some say when he says, The kingdom of God is within you, that the kingdom of God is within your heart. Now, there is evidence for that. That is the way the kingdom of God is at the moment. If we're in the kingdom of God today, it is because Christ rules in our heart. It is an invisible spiritual kingdom. But we're not inclined to believe that's what he was actually teaching here when he said, Behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Rather, we're inclined to say that Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees and he was telling them, in actual fact, the kingdom is right before you. The kingdom is up and it's running. And what's more, the king of the kingdom is right before you. You should notice, you should observe, you should see the things that the Messiah is doing. You should see what Christ is doing. What's he doing? He's preaching the gospel. He's curing the sick. He's opening the eyes of the blind. He's unstopping the ears of the deaf. The dumb can speak. He's raising the dead. He's feeding 5,000. He's feeding 4,000. He's going about doing good. These are the things that are attributed to the Messiah and the Scriptures, and Jesus is fulfilling every single one of these things. And the Pharisees should realize Christ and the kingdom is right before their very eyes. When the kingdom of God should come, it's there. There's a lesson for us. In one sense, there was a secrecy about it. But these people were more interested in the kingdom of God than the king himself. Now, for the Christian, the Christians should be the sum and substance of our, the Christ of the Scripture should be the sum and substance of our affections. Our eyes should be pointing towards Christ continually. We should delight in Him above all things. What we're looking at here is covered under the uh, theological department called eschatology. Eschatology. It is the study of last things. 
and many people are immersed in the study of last things. I'm not going to confuse you regarding all the various schools of thought regarding unfilled prophecy towards the end times. We would be here for weeks and weeks upon end, and more than likely, the more that we would hear, the more that we would be bamboozled. There are so many different opinions regarding the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ under the theological uh, discipline of eschatology. But I hope there's none here, friends, who's taken up with the study of last things and the forget to mention or to study first things. The first thing for the Christian is not eschatology. It's not the study of end times. It's not the study of any doctrine. It is the study of the Lord Jesus Christ and to know Him as Lord and Savior. That's the most fundamental thing. We can go wrong in our doctrine. And believe you me, friends, we should not go wrong in our doctrine. The minister's not saying that for one moment, but that can happen. We're not perfect. No matter how good we may be as theologians, we're not perfect. We don't know all about the Bible. We don't know all about theology. And we're not to be taken up with all of these things. Instead, we are to be taken up with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the more you're taken up with him, the more that he's first in your thoughts, first in your mind, the more that all of our systematic theology and our biblical doctrine will fall into place. Can you believe it? Here they were, Pharisees, religious leaders, people who were instructed in the Scriptures, who were known for their religiousosity. Yet, when the Son of God was before them, and when they saw all His mighty works, and they heard the wonderful words that came from His lips, they couldn't see that the kingdom of God was among them. It was there, right in their very presence. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Messiah was there. And therefore, it was a secret to them. They were blinded to it. Let's hope this is not our experience. Let's hope, friends, that we know that the kingdom of God is among us. Some people are waiting for another gospel. They don't realize that the gospel has come. Some people are waiting for lights from heaven in order that they, that they might believe. Some people are waiting for a vision. Some people are waiting for a word. Some people are waiting for some special experience. They'll never get it. No, they'll never get it. Why? Because the gospel in all its fullness has come. God has revealed his will concerning the salvation of sinners. He has put his son on the cross. He's done all that's required. We're not going to get another gospel. We're not going to get another savior. There's no further revelation coming from God. We have it here in the word of God. It's right before us. And the way of salvation is clear and plain. We are sinners by nature and sinners by practice. And we cannot save ourselves and this is the great offense of the cross. You must look to another. Yes, you must look to a crucified another. You must look to Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And if you're not looked to him, you'll never be saved. And if he will not save you, you'll never be saved. 
The kingdom of God is within you. The gospel is at your fingertips, as it were. Christ is here by his word and by his spirit. And Christ in the gospel is calling men and women and boys and girls to come unto him. Look unto me, he says, and be ye saved. Why saved? Because we need to be saved. We're lost. We're perishing by nature. And we have no hope in ourselves. But our hope is to be found in Jesus Christ and that wonderful love that he displayed towards sinners on Calvary's tree. You know, someone had said, and how true it is, you know, they put nails through his hands and his feet to put him to the cross, to pin him to the cross. But you know, if there was no nails going through his hands and his feet, he would still be on the cross. Why? Because he had this great love for sinners and he knew that he had to die for them. That's the Savior. The kingdom of God is within you. The gospel's there. Friends, avail yourself of it. Let it no longer be a secret. Let you no longer be looking for something else because nothing else is coming. What an offense to God to think that he must do something else in order to save you. Do you not think it's marvelous? Do you not think it's wonderful? Do you not think that Christ humiliated himself and condescended to the depths that he did? And do you think he's got to do something else to save you? Do you think there's some special treatment for you? No. God has gone to the extremes, we would say. Who ever heard of crucifying one's son in order to save wretches and sinners who deserve damnation? God has done this in Christ. It is offensive to him that you would look for something else. The gospel is there. The Savior has been crucified. His work has been accepted. There's an empty tomb today. Why? Because he is risen. He is glorified. He is exalted. He's in heaven today. And you are to have dealings with this Savior who is alive. Not dead. Alive. Alive forevermore. That's the Savior. The kingdom of God then and secrecy. Secondly, we would notice the kingdom of God and suffering. The kingdom of God and suffering. Where do we get this from? Well, we get it from verses 22 to 25. What do we find? Verse 25, he sums up, But first must he suffer many things and be rejected, of this generation. Here the Lord is reminding his disciples, and by the way, this portion of the the text we're looking at, he is speaking to his disciples. We notice that particularly at verse 22, and he said unto his disciples, he has, if you like, turned from the Pharisees. He's answered the Pharisees. Now he's going to speak to his disciples in order that they might be edified. And he speaks unto them, and he says lastly in verse 25, 
But first must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. And he was reminding the disciples again that as he was on the road to Jerusalem, he was going there not to be enthralled or installed as a king. He was going to be crucified. He was going to undertake the most cruel death known to man at that time, to be put on a cross, to be nailed there and to be hung up on the cross to die. A terrible death, a death that a Roman would never go through. It was considered too despicable a death. That's the death that Jesus undertook. And we see here something of the suffering of the kingdom of God. Christ had to suffer. Today, friends, he is what we call in his estate of exaltation. He is exalted. He now sits at God's right hand. He doesn't suffer now. He'll never suffer again. He's in that estate of exaltation. And the final part of his exaltation will be that day when he will return in glory and we will see him. But before all that, there was suffering. There was a cross before the crown. And when we say the kingdom of God and suffering, we are not talking exclusively about the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's true, no doubt. But his disciples would also suffer. Jesus says, the days will come, verse 22, when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. They were going to suffer in some, to some extent. The days would come for the disciples when we believe this verse is teaching us they would long for the day when Jesus would return. They were going to be troubled. They were going to be perplexed. They were going to face persecution, hardship. We believe many of the disciples, indeed most of the disciples, suffered martyrdom. And there would have been occasions when they would have cried out, Oh, that the Lord Jesus Christ would return. But he wasn't going to return. And maybe this verse, maybe we underline, maybe, maybe this verse is telling them that they would not see the return of the Lord Jesus in their day and in their generation. The days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. Christ suffered. They were going to suffer. They were not going to see Christ returning in all his glory. That was not going to be their experience. And they were not to be deluded. They were to realize that they were going to suffer as Christians. This surely debunks something that's said about religion as a whole and Christianity in particular. What is it? Some will tell us that Christianity 
is the opiate of the people. What's that mean, opiate? Well, opiate is something that soothes or stupefies. And very often people level this charge against Christianity. Oh, it's all right for the masses. It's all right for those low-educated, socially deprived people because it soothes and stupefies their experience through life and it helps them to cope with life. Absolute, utter nonsense. Real Christianity, friends, involves suffering. You will suffer for the faith. If you're a genuine Christian, you will know something of suffering. You cannot avoid it. It comes with the territory. But what Christianity enables us to do is to stand up under trials and tribulations and sufferings. And it enables the Christian to actually prosper in suffering. That's what it does. And that's what happened to the disciples. You are urged, every one of you, those in here and those listening online are, are urged to make their peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ and take up that cross and follow him and be found in him and know and experience peace with God. Peace that the world cannot give and peace that the world cannot take away. But know this, if you are real, you'll suffer for it. But also know this, if you're real and you'll suffer, you will be able to prosper during your sufferings. Here's a remarkable couple of verses from Romans that tell us exactly what I'm talking about. Romans chapter 5, verses 2 to 4. Rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. You know, when the worldling, when suffering comes to the worldling and to the false professor, what happens? They turn away from Christianity. But when suffering comes upon the Christian, he has the strength of the Holy Spirit. He is enabled to benefit from his afflictions and persecutions and sufferings. It helps him to grow in grace and to become more like the Savior and to be better prepared for eternity. And here is reminding the disciples of the kingdom of God and suffering. And this element of suffering was something that the Jews in the synagogue in their teaching about the kingdom of God would know nothing about. They would never suffer under the kingdom of God. No, no. Jesus had to tell his own disciples. They had to forget and unlearn many things that they heard. This is what he was doing there. He was telling them about the kingdom of God and about suffering. Thirdly, the next point is probably the most applicable to every single one of us here, and it is the kingdom of God and secularization or secularism. 
the kingdom of God and secularism. And we find this from verses 26 to 33. He's now going on talking about the actual time when Jesus will return. Yes, friends, we need to remind ourselves, despite what the world says, one day Jesus will return. This same Jesus will return. The same Jesus that was taken up into glory will come in glory one day. We don't know when. We don't know the day and hour. We don't know the year. We don't know the decade. We don't know the century. But we know he will come. And he describes what it will be like. As it was in the day of Noah. So shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. And here he describes life in the days of Noah. Or Noah. They did eat. They drank. They married wives. They were given in marriage. Until that day that Noah entered into the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. What we want to notice here. And also about uh, the description of the days of of Lot. We want to notice what Jesus doesn't say about these days. We know In the days before the flood, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Violence was spread abroad. There were terrible days of violence and wickedness and evil before the days of the flood. But what does Jesus focus on? He likens the days of Noah. They were given in marriage. Sorry, they did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, and so on. Look at the account of Lot. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. I believe if we started to talk about the days of Lot, our minds would instantly go back to Sodom and Gomorrah. And what would be the sin that would be uppermost in our minds concerning Sodom and Gomorrah? It would be sexual debauchery. It would have been homosexuality. That's what would have come to our minds. Jesus doesn't mention that at all. Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. Ezekiel talks about the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he talks about their sin. This is what he says in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 to 50. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom, pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen 
the hand of the poor and needy. And they weren't haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw good. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Pride. And we're not talking about pride in the sense that we use pride today concerning sexual immorality. It was pride of heart. Another sin was fullness of bread. They were gluttons. There was no shortage. They could go to their supermarkets and they could fill their trolleys with whatever they wanted. There was abundance of food. No one was starving. Abundance of idleness. If we are idle, the devil will find work for us. He will find activity for us. And it will not be God-honoring and God-glorifying. These were the sins of Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness. Jesus says, what does he say? They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. In other words, friends, what Jesus is teaching us here, when we look at the days of Noah and the days of Lot as Jesus saw them, people were simply taken up with the ordinary things of this world. The ordinary, normal, non-sinful things of this world. There's nothing wrong in getting married. There's nothing wrong in giving your daughter to be married. There's nothing wrong in building. There's nothing wrong in eating or drinking and doing all the things that we do every day. Nothing wrong in them. But the people were so taken up with these secular things that they didn't realize that the judgment of God was going to fall upon them in a moment's notice. Here was Noah building the ark for 120 years and it never registered in their mind, why is he doing this? What's going to happen? And here was the people of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah They were taken up with ordinary, lawful, legitimate things. They were looking after their families. They were going to school. They were taking a trip here. They were going out for coffee there. They were doing all the things that are ordinary. And they didn't recognize that the day when sulfur fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah, it was a glorious morning. The sun did shine. It was another day to do all their activities. And then the fire fell from heaven. This is a warning to every believer here. We can be so taken up with the ordinary, the lawful, the legitimate, the the needful even, And we forget, Jesus is going to come. And that day, you know, Jesus tells us that day will be like the lightning. We can usually tell when lightning's going to come. We feel it, we know 
It's clammy, we know, but we don't know when it's going to happen. But when it comes, you don't need anyone to tell you. In the dark night, it lights the clouds up, lights everything up. You know it. That's what it's going to be like when Jesus comes. You'll not need to switch on the news. You will see him with your eye. You will know. Therefore, we must be ready. Ready for that day. And yes, we must attend to the lawful and legitimate things, but they are not to dominate our lives. And this is our danger. Lastly, fourthly, the kingdom of God and separation. What have we got here? Verses 34 to 37. It's not a particularly easy passage, a portion of Scripture to interpret. We're not going to get ourselves bogged down in details. We're going to grasp one main lesson that we find in this section. And surely the lesson is there's going to be a great separation. And there's going to be a great separation between those who are intimate. Those who are currently intimate, one with another, one day there's going to be a great separation. One's going to be taken and one will be left. That's what he's telling us here. Verse 34, just to help us understand, I tell you, in that night there shall be two men in a bed. Well, you'll notice, friends, men, the word men is in italics. And that tells us that the translator has inserted that word. It may not be two men. It could be a man and a woman. More than likely. Whatever. That's what we have here. But there's going to be a separation. The one shall be taken and the other shall be left. And then it talks about two women shall be grinding together. Notice, friends, verse 34. He's talking about the night. Verse 35 He is talking about the day because no one goes grinding at night. And the same for the men in the field in verse uh, verse 36. The men don't go out to the field in the night time. It's the daytime. And therefore, you have the coming of the Lord in the evening and in the day. What's that telling us? It is a universal coming of the Lord. He will come one day and the whole of the world will know he has come that day. Those who are in the nighttime and those who are in the daytime, they will know that Jesus has come. And surely the lesson we're meant to realize is there will be a great separation What will that separation be about? It will be about those who believe in Jesus and those who don't. Those who are in Christ and those who are not. Those who are still in their sins and those who have their sins forgiven. There will be a great separation. That is the lesson. We could bog ourselves down with other details, but that's the lesson and we must absorb it. And we must make sure, friends, we make our calling and election sure. We must make sure that we're in Christ. And on that day when he comes, he takes us. This is the day of salvation. The kingdom of God is here. 
His gospel has been proclaimed. Come tonight, now. Embrace him. Receive him. Follow him. Call upon him. Before that great day, when he will come like the lightning, and there'll be no gospel call that day, it'll be too late. When will it come? It's here and it's coming. Amen.